Hello, 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 friends, and welcome to the She Finds Joy podcast, where we reclaim the super shiny lights that burn in each of us. I'm Kim Strobel, your truth-telling, real-talk happiness coach who believes in the power of showing up as our flossom selves, even and especially, my friends, when it comes to working through our hard stuff. After all, when we're playing in our arenas of bigness, life gets better as we get bolder. So buckle up for the no BS, zero fluff advice that gives you the small steps for big joy. One of the best things about She Finds Joy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other women who are creating more joy in their lives, just like you. You can find us at kimstrobel.com forward slash she finds joy. All right, let's dive in to today's episode. Here we go. everyone. Welcome, welcome back to the show. And I'm super excited that I am being joined today by my fellow friend and mentor and colleague, Felicia Hatcher. Felicia Hatcher is a White House award-winning entrepreneur, total badass business rainmaker, and the best-selling author of Start Your Business on a Ramen Noodle Budget. She's also a globally sought after speaker, a media darling, a mama, and the founder of the Tribe Cowork and Urban Innovation Lab, Code Fever, and Black Tech Week. She is also the rather awesome former chief popsicle at Feverish Pops, which was a gourmet ice pop boutique and manufacturing brand with a fortune 500 client roster that would make your head spin prior to becoming an entrepreneur. Felicia was a marketing executive working for big brands like Nintendo, Sony, Wells Fargo, McKee Foods, and get this, the NBA. So today I am welcoming Felicia to our show, to our podcast. I feel super honored and privileged to be able to share some of the same spaces with her. So welcome, Felicia. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Kim. Yeah, I'm so excited. So I just have to back this bus up a minute because Felicia and I actually, I believe in divine destiny and that that the God and universe is always putting the right people, the right situations, the right circumstances um, around you when you co-create with the universe, God, spirit, whatever one wants to call it. And so I think it's divine destiny that you came into my life. And when we met at a business mastermind, Felicia, I was so drawn to everything about you, the way you took up space in a room, the way you dressed, the glasses that you wore, like you to me are someone who just absolutely owned everything about yourself. You owned your body, you owned the way you looked, you owned your brain, your intelligence, like you really did just exude this level of intrigue and interest for me. All of that? <laughs> yes. I mean, I was. I could not stop looking at you. I just could feel this energy dynamic around who you were as a woman. And then, of course, our ties continued to grow, and we started mm-hmm. to get into um, a closer personal connection. And I have to tell you all, I have actually hired Felicia to do some business coaching with me. So she is more than a friend and a mentor and a colleague. She's actually going to become a part of my team that helps me put myself out there in the world in a bigger way. So I'm so excited to learn from all things from you. But what I want to do is I want us to back all the way up, Felicia, and I want us to, to hear kind of your backstory. Like, I mean, I think you even wrote this book about being a C student and getting like $130,000 in scholarships as a C high school student. Yeah. It's- I want to know who, who is the Felicia at 18 years old to the woman today that truly commands $20,000 or more to get your presence on the stage for an hour? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for the amazing and awesome words. I, I receive all of that. I appreciate that. And I'm 
I'm so happy that we met and we have like kind of set out on this journey together of being friends and colleagues. Like I'm, I'm excited about all of that. And then the invitation on your podcast, which I think is, good, is so epic and I'm so excited. So the Felicia, <laughs> the Felicia at 18 years old, um, goodness gracious, I don't even know if I recognize that person if she walked past me on the street, but <laughs> you know, it, there was a lot going on, right? And so I, um, I wasn't the best student in school on like paper. Right, but like I was extremely active. Um, I love working with my hands, and I'm a kinesthetic learner, and like all of these things just didn't really kind of transfer really well inside of the classroom. And so I was very much a C student. I, I always joke, and my mom hates when I tell that joke. But like, you know, I was like, if you could major and minor in anything in in high school, like freshman year, I majored a minor in like boys and basketball. Like that's where I spent <laughs> like all, like all of my time. And so as a result, my GPA suffered. Like it dropped down to a 2.1 as a freshman in high school. And I worked really hard the next few years to bring it up as high as I possibly could, but like never quite got it to a 3.0. You know, I, I was yep. like, I was just like, maybe on the way down, but like not on the way up. It didn't, <laughs> didn't go back up to a 3.0. Um, but I, you know, my mom told myself, and I have a younger brother, you're either going to college or you're going to military. Like those were kind of like our only two choices. Mm. Nothing wrong with the military. It just wasn't where I saw myself at 18 kind of wanting to go and kind of thinking through like the trajectory of my life. And then, so I had my mom on one side, right? Kind of like, you remember when you, Kim, when you had like the two little, like the, what is it, like the devil and the angel? Yeah, the angel like, and the devil, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the two voices on both sides of like and being very conflicted at 17 and 18 about like what the next steps are. And I think even just like that weighty question that I don't like asking 17 and 18 year olds, like, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? I think they haven't nearly experienced a fraction of what they're going to experience, but we're kind of telling them to define their life. A whole other story, right? Whole other podcast, Kim. But um, yeah, and I want to stop you right there because, you know, of course, my other business is I'm I'm an educator. And this is one of the things that I talk about. Like we actually do this to kids when they enter kindergarten, they come home with these little papers that say, what do I want to be when I grow up? And I'm like, I think that's the wrong question for anybody. I don't care if you're six or 16 or 26. To me, what that's really saying is like, what's the career that you're going to choose? Because that's going to define who you are. And that's going right. to let us know whether or not you're a valuable enough human being. When in fact, I think the better question is, how do you want to show up and serve in the world? How do you want to yeah. contribute to it in a, in a positive way? You know, we make it so much about the label of this career. And, and so, yeah, I think you're right. I think we do this to kids from the time they're super young, you know? Yeah, I get frustrated with it because like, you know, my daughter's six and people will like come up to her and ask her that. And I've, I've told plenty of people, I'm like, don't ask my daughter that. Like she's six. Like her yes. frame of reference of the world is very, very small, you know? And she goes from one day wanting to be like Elsa the next day wanting to be a pilot because she was on the plane the next day. And so like, I, I, I don't want her to, like, I want her to remain as curious as possible and not limit herself just to what she's been experienced exactly. at, at six years old. But I, I don't think people fully understand like how weighty though that question has become because like even with working with young people on the other side of like winning all the scholarship money as a C student, like that was the first business that I started in college. Um, like I'd won $130,000 in scholarships and grants uh, from two, like from about five organizations. And then I was like bombarded by like all my mom's like church friends, and, like yeah. all the organizations she was a part of. And my mom was an educator. So like all this, the, the educators with the classroom teachers associate, like it was just like a slew of like people everywhere my mom turned. It was like, it was just like, my daughter made the right decision and look what she's done and like hire her and, and have her come speak at your event. And so, uh, but like all the young people that I, I worked with as a result of like that program, it was, it was that like they, they were not exposed to even just the full scope of the cities that they lived in sometimes, but they would rush to just check a box or fit into a box whether it was something that truly moved them or not, like, you know, we talked all about Zona Genius, well, like in the group that we're, that yeah. we were in, but like, you know, most of them, they have no idea. And, and so they just kind of set out on this path that is very unfulfilling and that has not allowed them the freedom to explore 
and then you end up with really miserable people that even like and it takes hundreds of dollars you know thousands of dollars oftentimes in order to repair that or kind of uneducate or unlearn in order to kind of learn this new process of how to find the thing that like most excites them yes. and and really kind of shows them like how to have impact into the world but I, I love what you said right like I'm going to start using that of asking my dad, like, what is the impact that you want to have yeah. on this world? Because young people, I think, Kim, are so insightful with, like, that question. And, and like, you know, five and six-year-olds, like, it's going to be a story. And it's going to be pretty magical. Yeah. Um, we shut them down. We that. shut them down. Like, <laughs> kindergartners come to us, and they're so curious about the world. And then with each grade that they go on, they get more and more shut down because there's to they're told there's one answer. And it's in the back of the book. And by the way, don't look in the back of the book because that's called cheating, where in the real world, we call that collaboration. Right, right. And so I, I'm really passionate about this topic. And I, I love that you say you were a C student in high school because what you're describing and what you and I are talking about is really a fatal flaw in the education system, which says, you know, one of the things I teach about is, you know, the brain has two hemispheres and the left hemisphere is the um, logical, analytical, mathematical, computation. It's the black and white, the fact and the opinion. The left hemisphere is responsible for reading and memorizing and understanding information, being able to communicate and regurgitate it. But, but then you have this, the, the right hemisphere, which is like, it's really kind of been poo-pooed in society. So the right side of the brain is creativity and daydreaming and inspiration and empathy and compassion and big picture thinking and all of these things. But so many times when I look at our education system and I say to educators, what percentage of the day do your students get opportunities to live on the right side of the brain, to fu mm. function and focus and experiment with right brain compared to left brain? And almost always, they're like, it's, it's 95% left brain and maybe 5% maybe right brain. And so what happens is we're being told that there's one way to be smart and intelligent. And it means that you better have a super duper left brain. And all that other stuff doesn't count. When in fact, what we know, right, even from the research, is that IQ has 4 to 10% uh, to do with a person's career success. And so when you're talking to me about being a C student in a 2.1 GPA, I mean, I just get so fired up to hear this because you're right. It was almost as if you had to uneducate yourself. And I find it so intriguing, Felicia, that at this 17 or 18-year-old version of yourself, that there was something in you that basically said, I'm going to hack the damn system. Yeah, it, it was a lot, right? So it was, it was my mom, it was my guidance counselor telling me I'd never make it to a college or a university because of my grades. And so part of it was kind of like setting out to prove this woman wrong. But then like I had the biggest epiphany in my, I would say in my life at 17 of just like, there's more than one road to success. You know, exactly what, you, what, what you're talking about and like how to get creative with limited resources. Like that has literally become mm. the story of my life. And that mm. was the biggest lesson that I learned. I was like, all right, my grades weren't that great in, in high school. Um, but like, I was also in honors biology. But then like, I was also enrolled in a dropout prevention class. Like that's our public school system, right? Yes. Uh, but then, but I was really active. And so I was a big sister and I had like, I think 1500 hours of community service by the time I graduated high school. I was on the basketball team. I was on the leadership organization. I spoke at my high school graduation. Like I was on four different sports, like it, just a long list of accomplishments in the community. But what was the focus and what even made me really depressed because I'm like, I didn't have a big name college to say that I was going to when all my friends were going because my grades weren't that great. And everything around me was told me that like, don't even apply for scholarships because if you're not a National Honor Society student, you can just kind of like kiss that goodbye. And when I start like really looking at like, because my, the, one of the first days, once I, like, my guidance counselor told me that, and I almost just kind of gave up, but I couldn't, because, like, my Jamaican mother would not have that at all. <laughs> and, but I, I wanted to, because I'm like, this is someone whose job title is guidance. And if she's telling me that I don't have the potential in trying to define my life at 17 years old, like, this lady has a job, maybe she knows what she's talking about, yeah. you know? But one thing that I did uh, that was really important is like I went to like our, our high school, not to get too much into so, like the scholarship stuff, but like my high school had this thing called like Scholarship Wednesday. It sounds much sexier than what it really was. It was just like all the applications 
were put out on a table and you just go look around and grab what you thought was good for you. And I, I remember just like being late one day and having to get to class. So I grabbed everything and I took it home. And when I like sat down, I started to see, I'm like, okay, this one didn't ask for a GPA requirement at all. Or, you know, this one, the GPA requirement was really low. I ended up graduating high school with like a 2.7. Or like this one was just like, write an essay about bees and win like 500 bucks. I'm like, I can write an essay about bees. Wow. Like, you know, and so like my writing skills were pretty good. And so from a writing and then like kind of like civic engagement standpoint, like that's where I won all that money for, for scholarships. But like, if I would have listened to everyone and what they were saying, if I would have just kind of followed the mold of what society tells you, what's acceptable and what, you know, creates these kind of these pathways to colleges and universities and opportunities, like I wouldn't be talking to you. I probably would be saying like, hey, Kim, do you want fries with that? Like, because yeah, that's what my guy right? counselor told me. Yeah. It's interesting because I was telling my husband, I, I truly am intrigued with, with your story and your journey. And when we were talking after um, you and I had that little phone conference the other day and, and I was like, the more I think about it, I really do think you are a life hacker. Like, and what I mean by that is your ability to creatively come up with multiple solutions to a problem that are not following the path that's, that you're supposed to follow is actually yeah. what I think leads to your success. I feel that. I can see that. <laughs> you know, and I I'm like, Scott, that, yeah. she, Scott's like, well, how do you describe her? And I'm like, she's like a life hacker. Like there's all <laughs> these rules and guidelines and things that we're supposed to do. And I feel like what she does is she thinks so far out of the box that she has like all these hacks on how to really get to where we want to get to in our life, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be MacGyver when I was a kid. So. Oh my God, there you go. I wanted to be Cindy Lauper. The That's yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so you, you go to college on all these scholarships. Yeah. You get a degree in what? So I actually didn't graduate college. I, oh, I um, love you even more. Keep going. <laughs> I literally have one semester and my poor mom was just like, can you please just go finish before I'm in the grave? I... Um, <laughs> So I started this educational consulting company. I mean, much sounds much more sophisticated than I, what it was like back in the day. But like, that was the first time I got paid to speak, right? And so I had started creating like these college prep programs and like teaching young people and churches and nonprofits, uh, like how to get scholarships, how to get into college as like a non-traditional student or even traditional students that's just like looking for like some creative ways to be able to find money. And, um, and, and, and you're how old when you're doing this, when you're doing this? I was, little... yeah, I was probably 19 at the time. So you're 19 uh, and you're hosting these kind of little seminars and conferences. Yeah. Like all and all over the place. So like all over South Florida, I got flew out, like flown out a, a few times to, to some other States to do it. Um, I had a business partner at the time, James Taylor, like he won an athletic scholarship. I won like you know, this like writing civic engagement scholarships. And so we just came together and would do these workshops for a while. We did them for free. And then my mom, like good old mom, again, she was just like, this is starting to take a lot of time away from like your schoolwork and your grades are suffering. Like at minimum, you should be charging for this. Yes. And it was such a, you know, now I think entrepreneurship is just kind of like an everyday conversation for the most part inside like our higher education institutions. But like back then it was just like, wait, charge for what? Like, I don't even know what to charge. Begin to charge a few, you know, the same, yeah. I think people still do this. Like, I don't know where to begin with this. And so it wasn't even, it was just kind of saying yes to accepting money and like that mindset in the very beginning. And so like the first time we got paid, it was, we got paid like $125. And I think we did like an hour or two hour workshop on like scholarship prep. And our, our company was called Urban Excellence. And like, my dorm room num phone number would ring, you know, Urban Excellence. My roommate knew to like, I just you know. can't believe <laughs> what 19 year old does this. I mean, I mean, oh my gosh. And so, yeah. And then you probably felt like that was a pot of gold, right? Like $125 yeah. to get I, up I, and I, talk. I sure, I sure did. Like you couldn't tell me, Kim, that I wasn't like rolling in the dough. And then mind you, I was also still splitting that with someone else, but I, I was just like, this beats like my summer job working at the YMCA. Like <laughs> I just, you know, because it was just like, it was, it was one, something that I loved, something that I knew from like the, like the back of my hand. Like it was just, 
and then for someone to say like hey this is something and this is an industry that people actually pay like it just opened up so many doors for me i met one a really good mentor of mine james amps at the time who like came to lynn university and like spoke on the campus and he was the first one who told me like yeah this is a real industry and he was like ex-military and was like this leadership like keynote speaker traveling all over the place and he was just like but like what is this 125 dollars you're charging because like I met him and he brought me in to speak at his organization and that's how we became close and he was just like he's like well I appreciate you coming in for me for 125 but like don't ever charge anyone that again he was like always increase your prices in increments yeah. of like 500 or a thousand but none of this 125 250 <laughs> like what is that and I was just like granted I, I got it uh and so what the turning point for me um and Kim in, in college was that I ended up getting a contract. Well, we, we ended up getting a contract for $25,000. Mind you, this is like uh, 2002. So like I, when you talk about feeling rich with $125 at 19, getting a $25,000 contract oh. to do this work was just like nothing short of like amazing. Yeah. And, um, and so I told my mom, I was just like, I want to take a, a semester off and I want to work on like this business. Like there's something really there. And I've learned probably one of the most devastating lessons for me as a, a young entrepreneur is because I hired a friend and um, our program went through the school year and like we were on summer break, right? Kids were on summer break. We weren't running the program. And I, I got accepted into like, I don't know if you remember like monster.com, like they had this leadership program at John Hopkins University. And I went there for the summer. And when I came back to like pick up like the contract work we were doing for this youth organization, like I found out the guy that I had hired to help me run the program, like stole the contract from me. And mm. um, I was, I, when you say, talk about being devastated, mm. I was devastated. Not only because it was someone that I, I brought in, you know, you kind of remember like all the red flags, right? Yep. Yep. Um, and then I had also told my parents, it was just like, just trust me for a semester. I'm going to take it off. And that semester had come up, right? I'm taking off the semester and I'm going to pursue this full time because like I can pay myself a salary. I can grow this thing. And I think I can get more schools to like, and more organizations. You know, I was like, $25,000 checks are going to roll in. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was devastated. Like when you talk about depression setting in as a young entrepreneur, mm. I swore off entrepreneurship. Um, and so it was a really, really hard time for me uh, to get over that. I ended up taking a job at a, uh, at a ad agency. I did like five internships while I was in college. Like I learned, I think when you talk about like hacking the system, I learned that. And so I ended up taking a job um, working for Zimmerman Partners and Advertising, like a large advertising agency here in South Florida. And it, like there were just lessons all along the way. And so there, and then um, I quickly realized, I was like, I don't ever want to work in the advertising agency because I was working from like seven o'clock in, the, well, eight o'clock in the morning until like 10 o'clock at night. Mm. Like all my accounts were on the West coast. So I was like one of the last people to leave. And it was just madness. And I was just like, if I ever started a family, like I'd never see them. Like, it, you know, you have all yeah. these epiphanies of like none of the stuff that I wanted to do. And so my my professional career has been really, really interesting because I left that job and I applied to this Craigslist ad um, about, <laughs> about like traveling around the country with an experiential marketing company. So it was this company out of Chicago. And if you remember the, the TV show Road Rules um, no. on MTV, it's like six strangers, like pile into a vehicle and travel around the country. And it was like, you know, one of the first reality shows that was literally my job, uh, but it was for working <laughs> Is your poor mama about to stroke out at this point? Literally, literally, because not only, <laughs> yeah, just, and it, so it was the most random job ever, but I, the most fun I'd ever had in my life, six strangers, literally, and we're all working together for this experiential marketing agency called Marketing Works out of Chicago, but the client was Walgreens. And so it was like kind of like this PR campaign, and but we were on the road nonstop for six months, huh. hotels, living out of suitcases, early twenties, making like I think it was making like nine hundred dollars a week doing this work. And wow. so, my, yeah, and so most of my friends and family were like, "Do you really have a job? Because like none of this made sense. Like you're supposed to be miserable in a cubicle, right?" <laughs> it was just yes. like, 
no, I'm, you know, I'm in like wherever. I'm in North Carolina today, and like we didn't work on Mondays and Tuesdays. So I'm like, I'm at the beach on a Monday and a Tuesday, and then the rest of the time we're at like Walgreens doing like these PR campaigns and like giving out free health. It was just a really fun and random job, and then that is what that is what got me into the career path of like experiential marketing and PR and like brand management. And so I left there. I ran experiential marketing and product launch for Nintendo Wii Fit and the Wii Sports Resort. Uh, I ran, I was a, a regional uh, marketing manager for Sony when we launched the ebook reader. I was a uh, experiential marketing tour manager for McKee Foods, who runs Little Debbie Snack Cakes. Mm. And it was my job to collect. Well, it was like our job. It was a team of us in this like vintage Airstream that had a photo booth in it. And it was our job to travel up and down the East Coast collecting a million smiles. Like, that was my job. Oh my <laughs> so, gosh, it sounds like that soul pancake thing from Oprah. Very much, very much. Yes, if you can remember that. And just like, if you even think about, like, if you remember the um, Oscar Mayer weenie, like the g- giant Oscar Mayer weenie, yes. that, like, ran into someone's home. Like, I worked for that company. So, like, Oscar (laughs) Mayarino was a client. Walgreens was a client. You know what I mean? So, it was just, like, it's this whole weird, like, underbelly of, like, marketing industry that, like, people know us forward-facing, but they don't know, like, the behind the scenes of it. Like, we're really kind of, like, carny. We were, like, carnies and roadies. Yeah, right? Like, the people who sold the vacuum cleaners (laughs) door-to-door, you know, who ends up becoming, like, a multi-millionaires. But, like, Isn't that, I think it's so important for this message to be told though, because here's what happens so many times, especially with women. I work with so many women who have an idea. They have an idea for a business, but they absolutely talk themselves out of it. They tell themselves they're not skilled. They tell themselves they don't have what it takes, that they're being silly or frivolous to even think that they could chase after that dream. And so I think it's so important for you to to tell these stories be, and, and you know, I have kind of the same record. I mean, I was just telling somebody today that, you know, I was a single mom of a, of a two month old and I made $8 an hour, you know, and I rode the special needs bus in the morning and in the afternoon for an extra two hours a day because, because that gave me, got me $16 extra a day and I needed the extra $16 a day. And so, you know, I, I guess the difference is, is that we, we don't not chase after those things that we do feel passionate about. Like we just go for it and we're going to fail. Like you failed, you, you know, you've lost contracts. I've lost contracts. I actually had somebody steal yeah. a contract from me. Um, and it, it hurt like hell. It was yeah. very upsetting, but I do believe like all of this is just part of our learning and training and, and what we do. So you, you're doing all these random jobs and then you start this, popsicle company and I, I literally watched you your clip last week on the today show uh-huh. you're being interviewed for being this gourmet popsicle maker and there's there's like a picture of of you and or a girl and she's like literally driving this little freezer cart down the street <laughs> selling ice creams and, yeah. and I, I love this because we we as women need to hear stories of like this is what we started out doing and, and this is how we got to where we are now. And, and it's not like we just automatically started like knocking it out of the ballpark, but I, I want to hear about your little popsicle business that ended up becoming like a big ass popsicle business. Yeah. Yeah. It was, my life has been the most fun and most random like ever. Um, but yeah, I, I, I came up with the idea after falling down, chasing after an ice cream truck in heels. Like, who does that but me? You were chasing and... <laughs> the ice cream truck in heels. Yeah, yeah. I was leaving a party. Like, uh, my, Miami, South Florida is very known for, like, the white parties. Everyone's dressing all in white. It's a day party and, and all that stuff. So, like, it really made no sense to have heels on except for being at a Miami kind of day party. But we were talking about, like, how cool it would be to have ice cream, like, at this event. And, but like at the time, this was before gourmet food trucks and it was, um, before gourmet food trucks. And so when you think of like an ice cream truck, it was like really sketchy. The stickers are falling off. You don't know how long the ice cream has been in there. The driver's kind of sketchy. It's just like, nothing yeah, it's like, you're like not supposed to event. like, don't ever go up to the ice cream, man. Yeah. So it was just, it was. And so I leave this party and like, I kid you not, Kim, like I walk out and I hear ice cream truck music and like, 
I think any adult that hears like the nostalgia of like old school ice cream truck music and you just feel like a five-year-old kid and I yep. start running after this ice cream truck and like we were just talking about ice cream forgetting that I'm in heels and I fall like flat on my face chasing <laughs> after this ice cream truck and super embarrassed and the ice cream truck driver like luckily stopped and I got ice cream like I had this <laughs> I had like two epiphanies like one was like I'm way too old to chase after an ice cream truck and then two like why hasn't anyone come up with like a cooler way for adults to enjoy ice cream and I was I was like kind of on the ground for a long time but like it was it was also my Oprah aha moment like hey you know and I was like this might be a cool business idea but like I often tell people sometimes a a good paying job will stand in the way of you following your dreams as just as much as a bad paying job because I loved what I was doing at the time like I was in my early 20s and I was making at that point like almost um what almost two thousand dollars a week between like my salary and my per diem like being a roadie right and so so it was really hard to like leave that and kind of set out on this path plus like I had been scarred by entrepreneurship in the past Mm -hmm. and so when the economy tanked I was forced right I could not find another job in in my field you know, like when big corporations, branding and marketing kind of is one of the first things to go when they're like cutting costs. And so uh, all me, all of my friends and my roadie friends, we were out of jobs. You were out of a job. And And so I moved back to Florida with this like idea of like a gourmet pop company. I like had spent a lot of time in like Mexico and like LA and just like fell in love with Mexican paletas. And no one in Florida knew what the heck I was talking about, like when I would come home and like talk about these things. And so I moved back to Florida uh, to, to my parents' house, right? like mm-hmm. pretty embarrassed about that uh, with my husband, by the way. Oh, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm like, hey, 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 mom and dad. And decided to like launch this pop company in my parents' kitchen and like in their backyard and bought two ice cream carts off the luxury shopping website Craigslist and kind of set out on this path of, of just kind of seeing where it's going to go, you know, and didn't have a big vision for it at the time. I just was like, if it just makes me a little bit of money and I can just like, at least see where this crazy idea is going to go. Like I could not let go of the idea until I at least like did something with it. Right. Yes. And the startup world, we call it like the MVP, right. The minimal viable product. But like back then I was just like, I just need to do something to keep busy while I'm spending, you know, a few hours a day applying to job ads because I just really need something but it it started to it was slow in the beginning but it started to take off but what was really made it slow was like I had no experience in the food industry like whatsoever Kim I worked at McDonald's when I was 19 uh, or not, not 19 but 16 years old in high school my husband had worked for Subway like right before going to college and that was like it and so it was a lot of trial and error so a you're just like experimenting there. with these ice cream popsicle recipes? Yeah. Yeah. Just random recipes we would find online. Um, you know, there was like a little booklet that would come when you would buy the plastic molds off of the internet. And so, and then my husband's like grandmother had a farm. And so he was pulling like random recipes. Like my grandparents were, my, on my mom's side were from Jamaica. So I was like, we were just pulling random recipes and then we were foodies, right? Like we wow. both worked on the road. And so yep. we had our favorite Indian restaurants and it was just like, oh, let's try a mango lassi popsicle. Like, what would that taste like? And, um, and so it was, a, it was a lot of trial and error in the beginning. And we quickly, we tried to do the whole, like going to the schools during the day Mm-hmm. And like the mobile vending in- industry is pretty gangster, Kim. Like really? they were very territorial, and we were taking all their business because they were they had trucks, oh. and so they couldn't come inside the fence, and we could just ride our little oh. tricycle cart right up to the kids, and we were taking all the business. Yes, and so we kind of got kicked out of that, but then we also were just like, you know, let's go to where we actually would want to hang out. And so we started going to Miami and going out at night and hitting like the bar and like the party crowds and no one was there. Right. And so like that whole branding kind of niche thing of like, if you can't be number one or number two and then it's kind of build your own niche. Yes. And so we were able to become like the number one, like nightlife food cart um, and then food truck because no one else was going out at night and servicing like the people that were a little drunk and tipsy or had been partying and they wanted something fun. And so, 
our you know feverish pops was our company like our logo was like literally a woman in a in a nightclub with a popsicle in her hand and it was just really fun uh, we didn't know what we were doing so we made a lot of mistakes in in the first few years but that is what really started to take off for us and so a lot of the big brands start calling us because they would see us we would go out to these industry events like the pr industry events and the fashion shows and the like miami right it was very much a miami yeah. kind of lifestyle thing and it really kicked off and so google and paypal forever 21 airbnb when it first launched in miami was a client of ours we did all the trump hotels like it was just whole foods like cadillac Universal Records, like a long list of companies became our clients because we were doing something really fun. And then we started doing like custom pops for them. And so we could customize almost anything. We could customize a flavor for them. And so we had a lot of alcohol clients. So like um, Maker's Mark was a client of ours. Turtle, it was a Turtle Bay rum. We did stuff for Bacardi oh at one gosh. point. The vitamin water was a client of ours. We hosted a big vitamin water popsicle eating contest. And so like all these big clients were our, our companies were our clients and they would essentially like buy the pops from us. We would sometimes do some custom stuff for them depending on what they wanted to do. And then we would just, they would just kind of pay us to give them away. And so that helped us get our name out like crazy because like, you know, Forever 21, when they opened up on South Beach, they bought 5,000 yellow popsicles. And we put like a 10% off sticker, or not, not sticker, but a 10% off stamp on all of the sticks, which like sounded really good, Kim, but people had to bring the stick that they ate off of the next day. It was really random, right? But so, so we then, okay, how are you? Okay, I want to back up for a minute because first of all, here's what I love about this story. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote a book called Big Magic, and she talks mm -hmm. about how we are always being given inspiration and ideas and intuitions. But what happens is most of us tell ourselves, oh, that's silly, or that would never work, mm -hmm. or that's a stupid idea. But then there's like the 1%, 1% or 2% percentage of people who actually act on those ideas. Yeah. And that is what I want people to do because, first of all, I think we live in a climate where absolutely any business idea can be a viable option. Like recently I heard about somebody yeah. who was, ha had a hugging business, hugging and cuddling. <laughs> like hire these people who are lonely to come hug and cuddle you. And like they're freaking making all kinds of money because they've created a hugging business. And it sounds ridiculous, but I do believe that the landscape is ripe for this kind of stuff right now. The other it is, thing, it is. The other thing Elizabeth Gilbert says is she says, if, if you are given divine inspiration mm -hmm. and you don't act on it, it will go, that idea will go and it will attach onto someone else mm -hmm. and someone else will bring that to fruition. Yeah. And so yeah. you acted on this. I mean, and, and, and how are you mass producing 5,000 popsicles? Like, what's going on there now? You got like the whole family is doing this for you or? No. So it was, we had another partner, Joe, that joined the team. We had started by like year two, going to the third year, we had started hiring some staff, but we, we bought a, um, essentially got a high output machine from China. We actually bought two of them, which will take me down this other whole other failure story. But like, we bought it from China. It was supposed to arrive in six weeks. And we started taking like all these orders and the machine didn't arrive for seven months. And like, we almost lost the business as oh. a result of that. But like these machines would do anywhere from a few hundred to a few thousand pops per hour. Okay. And so, um, you know, it's, your normal freezer is only, it'll freeze like a, you know, a 12 pops every six hours if you're lucky. Yeah. And these, these machines would be cycling maybe about 400 pops every about 15 to 30 minutes. Oh, and so that's what allowed us to mass produce them really fast. And so my husband and Joe really kind of worked on mostly the production and the operations. And I worked on the business development, um, client relations, the, all the branding, all the marketing. So like we joked, they did everything like inside the wrapper. I kind of did everything outside the wrapper is like how we would joke about yeah. it. Um, but like, that's what really kind of helped us um, maintain and be able to supply like all these orders. Where is this popsicle company today? Yeah. So we, we sold the company five years ago 
And so it's still around, like it's still here in South Florida. Um, a good friend of ours who owns an Italianized company actually bought the company from us. Uh, but mostly it just focuses on like a private label. So private label was a huge part of our business, private label manufacturing. And so that's where the business still lives on. Would you call it like back end and not like yep. necessarily like a forward facing company these days? Yeah. Okay. So then you go on from the popsicle business, you sell that. And now where are you today? I'm back in the tech industry. <laughs> um, so I... We started a, an organization called Code Fever while we were still running Feverish. Um, a good friend of us actually came up with the name because he was just like, your company's called Feverish Pops. You want to like host a coding event for young people, put those words together. And that, that's how we came up yeah. with Code Fever. And it was only supposed to be a one-day event. And our intention was just to train our employees. We had a store in like the Midtown shops in, in Miami, and we knew that they weren't going to be in the pop business forever. And we wanted to just train them in like the most marketable skills possible. And so my husband is a programmer and I'm like, I know enough about tech to be dangerous, okay. uh, a little dangerous, right? And so we put a one day event together. We were just like, invite your parents, invite some of your friends and we'll teach you how to code and we'll bring some of our friends, we'll buy pizza, we'll just make it like a whole fun day. And we were only expecting about 20 people and like over 80 people showed up. And then after that day, we were bombarded with parents and people calling us about like, when, when is the next event? And we're like, there isn't a next event. Like we're running our popsicle business. We're trying to keep it afloat. Like our investors are drive us, driving us crazy. And it became something, I'm in a fellowship called Echo and Green, and they have this whole process around social entrepreneurship called like the moment of obligation of when like you see a problem, a social problem, and you ask yourself, if not me, then who? Uh. And if you can't answer the who else can do this thing, if I am not answering that calling, then it kind of, it's your moment of obligation to say you are the one that are kind of like need to do this thing. So that's what it became, right? There was startup ecosystem, like the innovation economy, kind of like this concentration over in Miami was just starting to sprout up and it was not inclusive of the black community or like the low income Hispanic community. And so we just knew so many young people that were missing out. You know, at the time, the youth unemployment rate was still almost 30% in South Florida. And we just know what that means, right? That whole cycle of poverty just yeah. kind of continues. And it's just, you know, it was so problematic. But like, we knew so many young, really amazing young people that were either working with us or we had interfaced through a number of like social initiatives that Derek and I were just a part of as like volunteers or mentors. But then we also knew really amazing entrepreneurs that were our friends that were building companies or high growth companies or tech companies here in South Florida. And like, they didn't have a community. And when we took on VC funding for Feverish, we also didn't have a community. We like, we didn't know anyone else in our community that had taken on significant funding for their companies. And like how to navigate that, what to do with that, like how to navigate a term sheet. And so in the beginning, we just wanted to train young people in like intro to computer programming, basic digital literacy, and then like how to navigate like a startup ecosystem as a person of color. But then two, we wanted to create a community so that entrepreneurs didn't feel lonely, mm -hmm. especially entrepreneurs from diverse backgrounds. And so like that's how that just kind of it started. But one of those things, again, where we kind of, we started it with the intention of being able to help people, but never kind of seeing it to what it is known for today, right? Like we own a co-working space in Urban Innovation Lab in Miami. We have a conference called Black Tech Week that has been in Miami for the past five years, going into the six years. We've taken that conference to nine other cities across the United States. We've trained and introduced over 4,000 students, like personally within like classrooms, in those three areas, intro to computer programming, digital literacy, and like navigating startup ecosystems. And then we've built like video games, right? And so we've built a video game for NBC Universal for the Grinch video game that came out last year. So over, I think close to a little over 3 million students and teachers have like been introduced to computer programming because of the game that like our organization built. And so, and then there's so many success stories of startup founders raising money and all of that stuff. And we didn't realize what we were doing with innovation economies, like ecosystem yes, building. Like, this, is, this was such a social need, especially like yeah. you said, people of diverse backgrounds interested in technology have maybe some skills around that, or at least a passion around it, but providing a space for them to learn 
to improve upon their skills and then start their own businesses. That's basically mm -hmm. what you've done is pr provided a space and a, a curriculum and a pathway for them to do yeah. that, correct? Yeah, and that was it. And for us, it was like, our goal was to rid communities of innovation deserts. And so people are very familiar with what food deserts are, right? People having to travel miles and oftentimes in order to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables, where the same thing is happening and has been happening from an innovation standpoint. If certain people from certain communities, mostly black and brown people, also women, right, want to be able to play big in, within the innovation economy, oftentimes they're not able to do that in their neighborhoods yes. um, or within their communities or even sometimes within their social groups because they're disconnected from being able to be a financial beneficiary of what the innovation economy provides. The, the industry is very much like for like the white guy in the hoodie and the flip-flops, right? 100%, um, yeah. And, and we just wanted to, one, change the narrative about that, but then two, really, truly, intentionally be able to connect people that are doing really amazing things to the opportunities that, that exist. And so that if you have an idea in your city, especially like an, an, an idea within the innovation economy, and like everyone is playing in the innovation economy, whether you realize it or not, but we wanted to, we wanted to make sure that there were no barriers at all. So if you have an idea in the city that you live in, you should be able to launch that idea. You should be able to stay in your city and not have to go to Silicon Valley where rent is like through yes. the roof but you should be able to play as big as you possibly want to unapologetically within the cities that you live in. But that requires infrastructure and ecosystem builders and programming and K through 12 and all these institutions kind of realizing the role that they need to play and then having people and organizations like ours that show them how to kind of asset map within their cities so that people know where the resources are, where to go, and then how to be able to be in that space and then be able to see people like them like succeed in the tech and innovation industry every single day because that's also a big part of it. You are it's such a mission-minded organization that you've built. It is so mission-minded. I hear it in your voice when you're talking about it. I mean, the fruits of your labor and what it's been able to do to really change the lives of so many people. And I mean, I think this goes back to the beginning of our conversation where it's like, I believe that we all have just so much potential inside of us that is lying dormant, but it is about getting the right people and the right circumstances and the right mm -hmm. situations around you. And then you're able to kind of bring some of that to the surface. And I think when you talk about playing big, and this is where I want to kind of go to end this, because that is one thing that you are a huge proponent of is playing big, finding your own path at your own trajectory, not having to fit in a box, being a creative problem solver, understanding that there are multiple routes to get to where you want to go and that you're allowed to create and kind of forge your own pathway. But I'm going to read something because I am big on, call it the, the arena of bigness, right? That we are allowed to play in our arenas of bigness. And so I'm actually going to read something that you wrote that just, I've written very similar things and it, and it just really resonated with me, but it was on a social media post a few weeks ago and you wrote, playing big is going to cost you something, sometimes a lot of things, money, people, clients, supporters, family members, sleep, hair, and most importantly, your comfort. And I want you to talk specifically about that for just a moment. What do you mean by that? I know what you mean, but I want our listeners yeah. to hear it from you. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're going to play big, you're going to have to sacrifice something, right? Like that one big part of it. The other part of it is that people are going to stand in the way of you being able to play full out because it, whatever they're dealing with, it makes them feel less than who they are or it no longer allows them to hide behind the excuse if they see that you're doing it as to why they, they, they weren't able to play full out as well. And that, that's what that really is about, right? It's just, it's that. Well, and then, people and need then to understand that. To, like, do it anyways. Yeah, because yeah. they think that like, I can't do it because it's too scary. So I'll do it when I don't feel scared. Then you're never going mm -hmm. to do it. Anytime you're going to make some type of big leap, you need to understand you're going to feel fear and you are going to fail at parts and pieces of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And then there's, there's that other part of it, right? Because I know you speak so much around like joy and happiness, but I think there's this other part of like stepping out on faith, right? And I, like, I often complain, like I've been on the road almost every week for two months straight, right? And yeah. like this whole year travel has been crazy. And there are times where I was just like, I, like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I have like this little memo that pops up on my phone that says like, you are doing exactly what you asked for. Um, and, and, and right and so like that's a part of that too of like what it's going to cost you like success is not all like accolades and awards and red carpets and you know it's also the other side of what comes with that you have to be okay with that as well yeah yeah it, uh, it's me every couple of weeks crying on my yeah. office floor because I you know I'm so stressed and I'm overwhelmed and <laughs> You know, yeah. and, and then, you know, then two weeks later, I'm like, oh my God, I'm living this amazing life. I'm back on top of the mountain. And then a few weeks later, I'm, I'm crying and broken out in hives. Like this is the entrepreneurial journey. It, is. It, is. It, it absolutely is, man. And I don't think enough people see the other side of that. So when it does happen to you, you almost individualize it. Right. And yeah. like, you know, all of this is a part of the process and you like, you absolutely have to trust the process. And I think when you look at like those, you know, everyone likes to talk and tout about like the high failure rates of people starting within the first year. And I think it's not that people don't necessarily know what they're doing. I think it's this story that we're told about the way the process is supposed to go. Like you're just supposed to have an idea and like then the next, and, you know, you can launch in your parents' garage today and like tomorrow your IPO and go public and like ring the <laughs> bell. And I'm just like, I'm like, no, actually, it it doesn't work like that. And it's it's a long journey. And it the 10-year overnight success sometimes is 15 or 20 years. And you're going to have immense amount of success. But then you're also going to have heartbreak and life is going to punch you in the gut and all these things. And that's where passion really comes into play. You know, passion is not this thing that you can just like write on the check and take to the bank and be like, cash me out. It's like, <laughs> It's those dark days when life has literally punched you in the gut along this journey, along you stepping out on faith. And it's that whisper that says just like, it's, I feel like it's almost kind of like in your belly and it kind of like welts up and it's just like, just keep going. Yes. Keep it, going. And, and I mean, that's to me what passion is. It, it is. And you and I have both made some dumbass decisions yeah. in the last <laughs> year. We still like flub up this whole thing called business entrepreneurship. Yeah. And, and that's like part of it. Like that's the only way to learn. And, and it does transform into new meaning in your life. But okay, so I want to read the next paragraph and I'm going to have you speak about that. So then after what you just said, you said you must stay the course. There mm -hmm. are people around you right now challenging your audacity to play big. Yeah. Let them feel what it means when you take up all the space in the room. Let them suffocate on your excellence. Let them be blinded by your shine. Let them choke on the tea they pour, hoping they can drink to your failure. And let me just say, when I read that, I was like jumping up from my seat doing a happy dance because Here's the deal. Even with me launching this podcast, Felicia, I know it's going to bring the haters back out again, yeah. right? Like if you're going to play big, you need to understand you're going to be attacked. You're going to have people who are literally hoping like hell that you fail. Mm -hmm. And this is a big part of the entrepreneurial journey. But I love how you say, let them feel what it means when you take up all the space in the room. Yeah. I mean, you know, you just got to keep shining bright, tell them to put on some shades, but you're not going to get out yes, of your life, you know? Yes. Shine um, that damn light. Yeah. I was, Kim, when I wrote that, I was going through it. Like, <laughs> it had been a really long week with someone um, pretty, that has played a really significant role in the work that I've, we've done over the past six years, was just kind of challenging me and us in like this really weird way. And I'm just like, you know what? Like, I'm going to show you, you know, and yes. you'll be sorry. It's yes, no more girl. just like, I need you. It's like, you'll be sorry. So yeah, yeah. But I think that's <laughs> like, that's, that's the fire in your belly yeah, that says, yeah. damn it, I'm going to stay the course. I mean, I tell people, the people in the background who come out to attack you, oh, Felicia, it, it used to get me so down. I'd be, I'd be distraught, not sleeping for weeks over it. I mean, back in the day, it was an extremely painful thing. And now, now I'm kind of like, uh, there's a little part of me that is like, 
Ooh, I, I see that I'm getting to you now again. <laughs> and then the other thing I tell people is it actually motivates the, you know, what out of me. Mm-hmm. It really does. Cause I'm like, you know what? You sit back there and you watch what this girl does. You wait and see because your ugliness and your nastiness towards me actually has motivated me to even knock it that much further out of the ballpark, you know? Yeah. It's important. And let them waste, let, let them waste their energy on that, you know? Cause yeah. it's just like, you could, you could tear, you can bottle up all that energy and do your thing and know that like, we can work together. We can work in unison. We can work, or you can just kind of sit there and kind of sit in your own self-loathing and just hate. <laughs> like, right. Right. Like, I don't have, you know, you don't have time for that energy. Yeah, no, we're not going there. We're, like we're climbing our own ladder. And if you take one step back to deal with, with all that or to sit with it or to let it eat you away, man, you're just impeding your own success. So I just loved these words because to me, this is the stuff that we need to be able to talk about. And we also need, need to know that we have the permission to mm-hmm. step into this brightest, shiniest version of ourselves that's ready to impact, serve, and elevate others. And I think yeah. so much of what you do in your story of failure after failure and, and the fact that you just kept kind of like, I just say, you just kept putting your big girl panties on and trying yeah. again. Absolutely. <laughs> I love it. You know, you don't have, I, I don't have any, I didn't have another choice. You know, it was just like, either I don't do anything and I become one of the people that we're talking about, right? Like, yeah, not really even upset about the person that's shining bright. You're upset because you didn't yeah. reach your full potential or you just go out and you do it and you get knocked down and you, you get back up and you build relationships, you build companies, but like my goal for me, and you know, it, it really resonated with, with me when Maya Angelou died. I'm just like, I'm sure she still had projects on the shelf, but yes. outside looking in, like Maya left it all on the field, right? Like yes. she put all of her gifts out there into the world. And I'm just like, when I, when I leave this earth, I want my tank to be completely empty. Mm. I want to have put all my gifts out into the world. I wanted to build something amazing that is going to leave generational wealth for my family, but for the community that, that I support and to really be able to have an impact on this world that's lasting. Yeah. That requires me to get up every single day and say, I'm going to give it all because the more that I give is the more that I have room and space within me. So more ideas and more creativity flows within me. I'm not going to hold on to something and hoard it because then I don't leave room for that stuff to kind of in that energy to flow within mm-hmm. me. And that's how I want to leave this world. Me too, girlfriend. I love that. Okay. Well, tell everyone where they can find you. Where can they connect with you or find your courses, your programs, your social yeah, media? Yeah. The easiest way to find me. And thank you again, Kim, for, for this opportunity to be on your podcast. I'm so excited. My pleasure. Um, FeliciaHatcher.com or Felicia Hatcher, literally on everything on social media because it's easy for me to remember. And then my program, my awesome program, No Introductions Required, is all about um, helping people speak their way to coins, power, influence, and their passion. And that can be found on Facebook and also my website at No Introductions Required. Yes, yes. So, so Felicia is she is the one who is going to take Kim Strobel to the next level when it comes to this speaking environment. And so, I am just super grateful for for you the opportunity to dive into your entrepreneurial journey and just to share this space with you. I really thank you so much and I honor the woman that you are and that you you give the rest of us permission to like what I like to say, play in the arena of bigness, Felicia. Nice, nice. I love it, I love it. Thank you. Much love to you, dear, thank you. Whoop, whoop, we did it. Thank you so much for joining me on the She Finds Joy podcast today. I'm super honored to share this space with you and I hope you learned something new and helpful. As always, this conversation will be continued in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to kimstrobel.com forward slash she finds joy to connect with other joy seekers just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time joining the show, know that I am here every Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe Go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can go to that directly if you go to kimstrobel.com 
forward slash podcast. That will put you in Apple Podcast, where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down just a little bit, you will be able to leave that five-star review and just leave me a few sentences, letting me know what you thought about the show. It really helps me. If you let me know how the show has impacted you and how you are striving for more joy in your life, you might be nominated to be the Joyful Woman of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more women unleash their happiness one daring day at a time. So please take a screenshot on your phone, share it out on social media, tag your friends, tag me at Kim Strobel Joy on Instagram or in our Facebook group, kimstrobel.com forward slash she finds joy. I'm quick to reply and I am super eager to send you some Facebook love. It makes my heart happy to be able to connect and surround myself with other women who are all ready to do this work. So thanks for being here and I'll be back next week. Until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you know that you are enough just as you are. Here's to finding more joy.